Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 142 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at private jets in the age of climate change. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I'd like to remind you that if you're looking at the state of the current energy prices, especially in the UK and Europe, and you're thinking, maybe I should look at putting in solar panels, a battery, and maybe a heat pump, well, check out the link in the show notes where you'll find my latest ebook. So, you've gone renewable. It's a quick view on my efforts to do just that, and it answers a lot of the questions I had before I started. If you can afford it, I would heartily recommend getting, at the very least, solar panels in a battery. This summer, I have literally cut my electricity bills down £301 for the last six months last year, gas and electricity down to £91 for gas and electricity and most of that was overnight EV charging or topping the battery up as peak. Our main topic of discussion today is private jets. Well, private planes in general. This is a longish one. You might want to break it into chunks. You may have heard a short while back the uproar that occurred when somebody tracked Kylie Jenner's private jet doing a 17-minute flight. Bill Gates also had one that had the same issue. Uh, There's a guy on Twitter tracking Elon Musk's private jet usage, and there's been several relatively short flights on there, as well as two SpaceX Gulfstream jets, which appear to do daily three-hour flights between California and Houston. Uh, There was all sorts of pearl clutching around the internet that these people didn't deserve private jets because they shouldn't be using them for short flights like this. Well, yes, uh, but also no. The short flights in question were what were called repositioning flights. A plane lands at one airport and the passenger takes alternate means to transport to another location, and the plane has to come and pick them up. Or, more usually, the plane is positioned at one location, but has to be regularly serviced at another location. Now, obviously, you don't want to take your plane halfway around the world to get it serviced, so you choose the nearest location that you can deal with. Uh, That might be about 15 minutes flight away, especially if you're in the US, where airports seem to be everywhere. 41% of flights taken in private planes had no passengers, and those that did had, a, had an average of 4.7 passengers per flight. You may have also seen recently that Cannes and Nice airports have private jet issues. One of them had landing slots and no parking areas, whereas the other had parking, but it's a lot further away from Cannes. So private jets were dropping off passengers in one place, then taking a 15-minute flight to the other place to park, and on the return journey, they were reversing that. The result is 60 flights in June this year between Cannes and Nice, a distance of 35 kilometres by motorway. But the bigger issue that people seem to be missing here is the whole concept of private aviation at all. According to data gathered by the Stay Grounded Network in 2019, 21,979 active private planes were registered throughout the world. 71% of them in North America, and another 13% in Europe. Almost 22,000 private planes. Now, obviously, they're not all jets, but still, 
Wow. Anyway, a little bit of a story. Back when I worked with a big US multinational, I spent a couple of years working in their internal audit department. One of the yearly audits they would do is what's called the corporate compliance. And it checks the uh, senior management's uh, expenses and validates that the people running the company were lining uh, everything up with the appropriate policies that were in place. So this was a publicly traded company and obviously couldn't be seen to be doing anything underhand. <coughs> Enron. <coughs> so in this particular audit, they decided to review the use of the corporate jet and I got the gig. Now, when I say the corporate jet, I mean the corporate aviation arm. It's an area with its own full department, personnel, premises, the whole nine yards. They had a complete terminal at one side of the nearby international airport alongside a large hangar in which three Gulfstream jets were housed. Oh, these were lovely planes, shiny, new, fast, luxurious, just what you'd want to be seen in if you were the senior executive traveling to Washington to ask for corporate handouts for your ailing business. The key thing I wanted to ensure was that the people who were using these expensive planes a Gulfstream 650 private jet flying 200 hours per year costs approximately $9,300 per hour or $19 per flown mile on average to make sure they were providing appropriate justification for this. So I checked the logs. Almost without exception, the justification for using the corporate jet was saves time. It was quicker to drive to the corporate hangar, 15 minute arrival before takeoff, and fly direct to, say, Washington Dulles Airport than it was to drive around to the other side of the main airport, take a business or first-class flight to Washington, and then negotiate the public terminal at that end. The thinking was that the money they were paying these corporate executives was so big that it was cheaper to spend the money on the jet than to have them fly commercial and waste time. Although having said that, someone once did the calculations and determined that it was cheaper for the chief executive officer to actually soil his trousers and get a new suit than it was for him to take the precious time to physically go to the toilet. So what does that tell you about executives and their cost-benefit calculations, eh? I did some calculations and the most expensive non-stop flight I could find departing tomorrow for the route in question was £262, it's $315. For a flight of this distance, approximately 500 miles, that works out at 63 cents per mile, and the flight would take about an hour 40 minutes. That same flight on the corporate jet would also take around an hour 40 minutes and would cost approximately $16,275, a price difference of $15,960. Of course, if you were taking the jet, you could take a group of people with you. I think the large Gulfstream they had could seat 19 passengers maximum, on the commercial flight, that would cost a little under $6,000. Still $10,000 cheaper than the private jet. But of course, this means that the executives would have to fly alongside the hoi polloi, as well as get to the airport an hour or so earlier and suffer the indignities of delays and poor airline food. All things that their employees, such as me, were expected to do as a matter of course. Considering the most senior executive at that company earns a base salary, excluding bonus or stock options, of $1.5 million a year, his time, assuming a 60-hour work week of 50 weeks per year, is $3,000 an hour. So the one-hour, 40-minute flight to Washington would be worth 
$5,000 to him. Although the flight itself is not the issue, it's the time saved from the flight, which would be approximately an hour and a half, equating to $4,500. And for this, the company is spending $16,275 on the private jet. Sure, they'll say we can hold company meetings on board the jet. We can talk business on board the jet. We can discuss confidential information on board the jet. If there are 10 of you flying on the jet, that's not possible because the jet isn't set out that way. And if there's just one of you, then who are you having these conversations with? As a final note in this story, the company went through a bit of financial hardship a few years later when they lost the patent on one of their main products. They looked at the whole company to see where they could cut costs and reduce headcount. The only part which was ring-fenced off as untouchable was the corporate aviation department. So what does this tell us about private aviation? Well, it has to be said that it's a bit of a rich man's plaything, or indeed a rich woman's plaything if you look at Kylie Jenner. There are very few instances where taking the corporate jet is justifiable on a cost basis. In reviewing the whole flight log for all the planes that year on the corporate compliance audit, the only entry I could find which might have justified this was a recruitment flight where they went from a corporate aviation hangar to one of the Ivy League cities with 10 corporate recruiters on board. They used the jet because the Ivy League University was not well serviced by direct flights, but it had an executive airport very close by. They then went from that executive airport to another executive airport close to a second Ivy League school. Again, there was no direct flight between these airports. Using one of those flight tracker apps, I tried to see if I could get a picture of the scale of private aviation. Within the app I was using, you can select by airline. I chose NetJets Europe. This is a subsidiary of a company which basically connects aircraft owners and people wanting to fly in private jets. At half past midday on a Tuesday afternoon in August, there were, according to the app, 18 private jets run by the airline, either flying or on the ground at airports preparing to take off. If I switch to NetJets in the US, the figure jumps to 17 just in the New York slash Washington area alone. Note, this was before 8am local time. Once the West Coast wakes up, that figure jumps. And these are just jets which are open to hire by strangers as part of the NetJets organisation. If we include the number of planes owned and run by large corporate airlines or mega rich individuals, I'm looking at you, Kylie Jenner and Bill Gates, this number jumps precipitously. Remember too, these are flights either in progress or about to start or just landed, and this doesn't account for planes which are currently hangered or not ready for a departure at the moment. I can also search by aircraft type, regardless of who owns and operates it. One of the more popular private jets are the Gulfstream Rangers, as I've already mentioned. I was at Farnborough Air Show recently, and I saw that the total suite of planes they, they were putting together in the range, it's, it was gorgeous. This fantastic, stylish, high proficient, and really, really expensive. Checking the app, it seems that at 12.30 on a Tuesday in August, there are currently 65 of them airborne. And remember, each of these planes will usually have a relatively small number of people in a plane with quite a large carbon footprint. The top seven ultra-wealthy Israeli tycoons have a yearly private jet carbon footprint equal to 3,368 years of carbon emissions from a typical Israeli citizen. A single hour of flight in a private jet leads to the direct emission of between one and five tonnes of carbon dioxide, 
without even taking into account all the other factors that lead to atmospheric warming. On average, a single kilometre of flight in a private aircraft emits 10 times more carbon dioxide per passenger than that resulting from a one kilometre flight on a commercial airliner. For context, someone who drives an EV, eats vegan, has solar panels, a battery, a heat pump, can write off the whole of his carbon footprint for well over a year by taking one transatlantic flight from London to Orlando by scheduled airline. So someone doing the same flight in a private jet will be creating a proportionally larger carbon footprint. You would especially do so for very short flights because taking off is the most energy intensive part of any flight. A common model of a private plane burns 226 gallons of jet fuel an hour on average. And jet fuel, which is typically not taxed, emits more toxic gases than gasoline petroleum. So what do we do about this? Well, it would seem that the easy solution, the one which would resolve the problem with the least amount of effort, would be to get rid of private aviation, remove all the private jets. However, this is in itself an issue. What about all the people who make those jets? What about the pilots who fly them, the companies that operate them, the mechanics that maintain them? If you get rid of that whole sector, you're going to cause hardship for a lot of people. Furthermore, the sort of people who would suffer most from this, the corporate executives and high net worth individuals who regularly travel by private jet, are exactly the sort of people with the lobbying power and influence to stop this happening, uh, which is a topic of a whole other sort of podcast. So is there a plan B for this? Well, yes, there is. The sorts of planes that are being used need to be changed. We've talked regularly on this podcast about electric aviation. We know there are planes either being developed or being tested that can take the place of a number of these private jets. At the moment, the range isn't quite there to replace some of the bigger, more expensive Gulfstream jets, for example, but certainly a lot of the shorter hops can be replaced. With upcoming planes under development, not to mention the introduction of hybrid planes running both battery and hydrogen, or avgas and hydrogen, the carbon footprint is reduced dramatically. But we do need to ask ourselves, what is the reason we need private jets? Why does Elon Musk and SpaceX have two regular flights between Texas and Los Angeles every day? I used to work alongside listener Sean Dunphy, hi Sean, in a company which had two bases in the UK. One was near Farnborough and the other was uh, near Preston. They ran a company shuttle, a BAE 146 with four jet engines, every day between these two airports. And it wasn't just for execs, it was a scheduled flight that anyone in the company could book to fly on. Was it necessary? Well, I would suggest not. Was it convenient? Well, absolutely. Could it be done with, say, an Aviation Alice electric aircraft? Yes. It's 192 miles as the crow flies, easily achievable and carbon free. But this does need something of an attitude change at a very fundamental level. Take commercial aviation, for example. There's a website and Twitter account called Flight Free UK, link in the show notes. It's built on the premise that we don't need to always be flying everywhere. For a large proportion of the time, this is entirely accurate. A lot of us use flights to go on holiday, but do we really need to fly from London to Rome? Can we not take the train? What about sailing from Southampton to Miami instead? Sure, it takes longer, but remember flying always used to take longer. When the first flights between England and Australia took place, it was a four-day journey in each direction, with stops in places like 
Rome, Tripoli, Cairo, Qatar, Karachi, Singapore and Darwin before your final destination in, say, Sydney, Brisbane or Perth. Hell, I've done that flight. London, Bombay, Bombay, Perth, Perth, Melbourne, Melbourne, Sydney, back in the late 70s, returning via Darwin, Singapore and Bahrain. And let me tell you, it's something of a slog. But the reason for that is that they wanted the low cost of a charter flight, but needed the length of the multi-stop flight due to aircraft limitations. Back in the days when it used to take four days to do that trip, the journey became part of the experience. It was first class all the way, with the men wearing tuxedos and the women in dresses and pearls. There was no night flying, so overnight stops in exotic places such as Cairo were the norm. But once cheap flights started to arrive, the adventure of travelling disappeared. People wanted to pay as little as possible and expected even less of that. If it meant they had to try and sleep sitting upright on a seat that had way too little legroom for them, then so what? They were on their way to somewhere rather than travelling with a destination in mind. I think a lot of the issues we currently have with aviation will be solved if we raised the prices, made multiple stops and had the journey become the holiday. But if you're going to do that, you can get rid of planes altogether. Take three days to travel transatlantic on a ship rather than six hours in a packed airliner. I mean, I've said it before on this podcast, there are 36 flights that depart London airports and travel transatlantic every day in each direction. While that seems like a lot of flights, all the passengers on those planes could comfortably fit on a single cruise liner taking three days to cross the North Atlantic. But will people do that? Ryanair has recently announced that the era of the 10 euro flight is over. And I say, excellent. Anything we can do to make it less attractive to fly is a good thing. But when we're talking about the sort of people who can afford $9,000 per hour for a private jet, the cost issue isn't one that's that important. At a corporate level, especially if the company is one which can ring fence the corporate jet department as non-negotiable, cost is immaterial. The same for the celebrities in this world who have their own private jets. Lewis Hamilton, Kylie Jenner, Bill Gates. Cost is not an issue. The other thing that needs to be looked at is a whole area of tax breaks for private jets. For many people, the cost of a private jet can be offset in a single year against a tax bill. So Lewis Hamilton, who earns approximately $50 million a year from his Formula One career and associated endorsements, bought a $30 million Bombardier Challenge jet. The $30 million is offset against his $50 million earnings and it's just the remainder that is taxed. That's a huge saving for Hamilton. And the irony is that he could finance the purchase of the plane over several years, but take the whole tax saving in the first year. Admit it, if you can find a way to drop your tax bill by the best part of 60% just by buying a car on loan, you do that almost in a heartbeat, right? So that's a tax loophole that needs to be fixed to make it less attractive for individuals to purchase private jets. But that still doesn't solve the issue of corporates buying and running multiple aircraft. Shell Oil has a small fleet of jets which cost in excess of $200 million to buy. They aren't going to be worried about the tax implications of things like that. In fact, in their business model, the more fuel they need to buy, the more that needs to be extracted from the ground and the more profit they make at the end of the day. The other thing to do is to price private jets out of the market by putting surcharges on fuel. This affects companies like NetJets that practice fractional ownership. You don't buy the plane, but you buy the right to use the plane for a length of time. Often you can price the buyers out of the market. The issue, of course, as we've 
already said, is that you sometimes end up putting yourself out of business. Which then raises the question of, should we be supporting businesses which are actively contributing to climate change? Well, the problem with that is it's a slippery slope fallacy. If we start putting net jets out of business, it's a slippery slope. Where will it end? Pretty soon there'll be no airlines and literally millions of people out of work in the airline industry, at airports and in ancillary supporting businesses. But where does it end? If we put net jets out of business, should we then also put British Airways out of business? What about Ryanair? Obviously not, although maybe Ryanair should be out of business. The 10 euro airfare they pioneered is responsible, I think, for a great deal of the cheap flight mentality which permeates the travel industry. Maybe they should slip quietly away. But I do think that airfares should become more expensive so that people think twice before flying. The 36 transatlantic flights every day between London and New York, these are almost all run in large, wide-bodied aircraft. Airlines wouldn't put these flights on if there wasn't the demand. If airfares were higher, the demand would drop. If the demand drops, the number of required flights would decrease. If the number of flights decreases, the associated pollution would decrease. Airlines would still be able to fly their routes. They'd still have high occupancy rates, fewer flights, each one with a higher occupancy, and everybody wins. I contend that we could halve the number of London-New York flights in a day without causing any undue pain or inconvenience on transatlantic travellers other than increasing the amount they pay for a flight. And, and this is from someone who, who used to do between six and ten transatlantic flights per year. But I digress. This episode isn't about uh, commercial airlines, it's about private jets. So here's a controversial suggestion of the day. Ban corporate flying. If you want to run an aircraft that can fly faster than, say, 150 knots, you need to register as an airline. You need to be covered by all the rules and regulations that relate to an airline. You need to ticket and bill everything like an airline, and you need to get slots into and out of airports like an airline. Most importantly, you need regular scheduled routes that members of the public can book. In the case of the company I mentioned earlier, where they ran a BAE 146 from Farnborough to Preston and back twice a day, that would be fine. It would mean SpaceX would need to register their Fremont to Houston flights as a scheduled service. But the important thing is, they'd have to open these flights up to the general public. I mean, yeah, they could charge large fares for them, and rightly so, but they'd have to charge the employees taking the trips the same fare. If someone wanted to meet Elon Musk, all they'd have to do would be to buy a ticket on that route and hope Elon was on that particular flight that day. Although ban private jets sounds like a radical argument, it isn't really. There are any number of high-priced alternatives that the 1% can choose, including hiring security guards to ensure the privacy they say flying private brings them. I've mentioned Kylie Jenner already on this podcast. She owns a private jet plane that took the 17-minute journey recently that was lambasted by social media and the press. Her sister Chloe, apparently another one of the multitude of Kardashians, hoping to avoid the same sort of negative publicity, recently flew commercial. But she used a service called PS, based in Los Angeles. It is basically a private airline terminal with its own customers, security, TSA service, spa, dining facilities and private car parking. You drive there instead of the main terminal. They do all the check-in for you, clear you through security, take your bags to your flight and shuttle you out there in a limo to your presumably first class seat. Sure, it's expensive, 
but it replicates the private jet experience without needing to own a private jet. And if you could afford a private jet, this service is less expensive, more eco-friendly, and better for your public image. It's only available at LAX at the moment, however, but they've got big plans. So, in summary, the top 1% of the world's population are using private jets. This is having a disproportionate effect on the pollution and carbon emissions of the rest of the world. There are cheaper, less carbon intensive ways of doing the same thing. So, ban private jets. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. There is a family-friendly, eco-conscious alternative to cars that can be used in cities where cycling has been prioritised. It's called the Backfeets, which is Dutch for, more or less, a cargo bike. Basically, it's a bicycle which has had an extension on the front to add a container, and this container can be anything up to four feet long, and the front wheel is attached to the front of that. The whole idea is that parents can put their children, or their groceries, or anything else they want into the front of the Backfeets, and take them anywhere they can take the bike. Places like Holland, Denmark, and some parts of Germany and Switzerland have gone for this in a big way. The benefit for the children is that it teaches them that cycling is a good way to get outside with your family. It also gives them a much better view of the road ahead, rather than using one of those cycles in which the child is sandwiched in behind the parent's back. When kids look forward, they see a lot more, and the journey becomes more interesting for them. Backfeets come in various shapes and sizes, including ones with covers to protect the passengers from the elements. Follow the link in the show notes to see a video from the Not Just Bikes YouTube channel all about backfeets. Is this something you'd look into if the conditions were right? The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by Zapnap, the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK, which helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Zapmap is free to download and use, with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using Zapmap in car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? Well, if you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want something to read on your Kindle. So you've got it electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent. And it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So you've gone renewable. It's also available on Amazon for 99p and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them both out? Links for everything we talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words, Ban private jets. Hashtag, if you know, you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder, Simon. You know, he's currently chatting with a tax fan about last year's tax bill. They won't allow him to offset his skateboards, one wheels and unicycles against his income. They say it's too much to offset and they'll now end up owing him money. I asked him why he keeps buying them instead of a new car and he told me, 
Admit it, if you can find a way to drop your tax bill by the best part of 60% just by buying a car on loan, you do that almost in a heartbeat, right? Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.